We all have struggles in our families, but that's probably not the best way to solve them, is by tug of war. But if you're involved in any kind of relationship, which we all are, we all are in some kind of relationship, you know it can be a real battle sometimes. So we're in this series called the Relationship Tug of War, where we're trying to learn how to deal with our various relationships. So last weekend, we talked about friendship. Next weekend, we're going to talk about hate. I've had a lot of people ask about, you know, the hate we see in our culture today and where does it come from and how do we deal with it? So we'll talk about that. But this weekend, we're going to talk about family. In particular, we're going to talk about marriage and we're going to talk about parenting and uh, child relationships. So let's get started. And the way I want to do that is by just briefly reflecting on something I said last weekend. I said, it's really hard in our culture to make good friends because our culture works against good friendship. And the way it works against good friendship is that our culture emphasizes individualism. And individualism basically can be boiled down to simply me first, right? It's about me, it's about getting my way, it's about you know, succeeding and having money and all the things that go with that. And when that happens, you have a tendency then to treat your relationships whether you're talking about relationships you know, among students or adults as a means to an end. I have friends, so I'll be accepted. I have friends so that I'll fit in. I'll have friends so I can network in my business. I'll have friends so when you fill in the blank. Instead of just having friends for the sake of having friends and loving them and caring about them. So if you take that same principle of individualism and apply it to marriage, it's like even way worse. It's way worse because marriage is supposed to be about me getting out of the way and putting my husband or wife first. Marriage is supposed to be about the other person. I love them so much that their needs come before my needs. And marriage is meant to be, by God, designed to be a place of great and deep satisfaction. And what I mean by that is if you have a husband who says, I'm putting my wife first, and a wife who says, I'm putting my husband first, then you've got a real, real winning opportunity. Because I don't know about you, but don't you just love being around people who put you first, <laughs> right? It feeds your need, right? But that's just a wonderful feeling. Whether you're students or whether you're adults, it doesn't matter. When your friends care more about you than they do about themselves, I mean, it's humbling and it feels really, really good. And so if you're in a marriage where your spouse cares more about you than about themselves and you feel the same way about them, it just, it's just a win-win. That's why when <clears throat> Solomon wrote some of the Proverbs, he wrote them to his son to advise his son about decisions he was going to make. And if he'd written it to his daughter, he'd be advising his daughter. So you have to look at it from both perspectives. And in particular, he talks to his son about the satisfaction that can come with the right relationship in marriage. And the way he does that is he points out the dangers of dissatisfaction. So look at Proverbs chapter 2. He says to him, son, I'm paraphrasing, wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman. Now, if it had been his daughter, he said, would save you from the adulterous man. From the wayward woman with her seductive words who has left the partner of her youth, we'll come back to that in a moment, and ignore the covenant she made before God. So what he's saying here to his son is, don't connect your life to a woman Okay, and it could be the other way around if he's talking to his daughter. It could be a man, all right? A woman who has left her commitment to her husband. You don't want to be around that person because 
Who's to say they won't do the same thing to you? And what's interesting is in the Hebrew, according to scholars, this phrase, partner of her youth, can also be translated her best friend. So don't connect your life to someone who bailed on their best friend and their commitment to the best friend that they made in front of God. Because if they bailed on their best friend, they're going to bail on you. Now, remember last week, and I talked a little bit about what a best friend is. And, and I said, the way we make friends, and I got this from C.S. Lewis's book, Four Loves. He said, is that best friends, people we develop close relationships with, are individuals who we find things in common with, who we have a shared vision with, a shared passion with. He uses that little phrase, it's kind of a question, what, you mean you too? You too feel excited about that kind of food? Oh, I love that food too. You too like that kind of music? I love that kind of music. You too like to travel? I love to travel. You too care about that cause? Oh, I care about that cause. And on it goes. What happens is we form a connection. We go, oh man, this is awesome. This is so satisfying to find somebody who at least thinks a little bit like I think. Well, in the scheme of marriage, that's what dating's all about, right? It's finding that person that you have so much in common with that there's a chemistry, there's a connection there, and you go, hey, let's spend the rest of our lives together. So those of you who are younger, really, you know, I encourage you, students, because, you know, if you think someday you're going to want to be married, you know, keep these things in your mind, like in the background of your mind of, of how you look and who you consider. If you're single, think about these things as you think about having a partner, okay, someday. But think about these things. Now, here's the deal. Once you find it, you fall in love, and you get married, does not guarantee you're always going to be satisfied. As any married couple will tell you, marriages have an ebb and flow to them, all right? What happens is one day you wake up and you realize that person you thought was so awesome and so perfect isn't so awesome, isn't so perfect. And if you have kids, life gets really busy with your, with your students. You have your job, life gets really busy with your job, health, finances, and pretty soon you start kind of drifting apart. And the danger when you start to drift apart is you still have the need for satisfaction. The problem is I'm not getting it at home. So I start to drift then, and I'm spending more and more time with other people than I am with my own spouse. So I cited a secular study last weekend that said it's probably not a healthy thing for you, especially, especially as a married uh, individual, to have close friends of the opposite sex. Because what happens is, I start getting together with the close friends of the opposite sex at work, at, at play, or wherever it is, and I start talking about what's going on in my life, and they start listening, and I really love the fact they're listening to me. And we start talking about our projects, the fun things that we do together, and pretty soon I find myself in a conflict of heart. I find myself being, being attracted to this person. There's a satisfaction that's coming with this person. And the next thing you know, the marriage blows up and the family falls apart. That means that I have to work at keeping satisfaction in my marriage relationship. I got to work at it. And one of the ways that I work at it is I keep alive the vision of why I love this person so much. I keep alive the fact that what drew me to this person was the you too kind of thing, and we keep the you too part of it alive. And so one clear example would be romance. We keep romance alive in our life. Look at this weird verse out of Proverbs. I say weird because you're going to think it's weird. He says, may your, he's talking to his son, could be the opposite daughter, may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May you what? Rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Did you ever know that such steamy verses existed in the Bible? <laughs> Go read the Song of Solomon. When's the last time you read that? Oh my goodness, that'll turn you pink with embarrassment. Read that as a married couple. Read it together. Now, there's a little more to this verse. Let's talk about this verse contextually. This verse was written at a time, and there's still some cultures where this is the problem. It was written at a time where you married for status, and you married to have somebody in a male chauvinistic society, you married to have your wife raise your kids. Men would have mistresses on the side for their physical intimate needs. And what the writer is saying is, hey, 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 no, you can't do that. All your needs to be, need to be met by your spouse, your best friend, and vice versa. That's the person who needs to intoxicate your life, and you got to keep that intoxication going. See, marriage is like a fire, and that can be taken in a bad way. I mean it in a good way. I mean, if you, you know, I know I, there are a lot of things I don't like about winter. Believe me, all right? I'm not a huge fan. But one of the things I enjoy about winter is a good fire. How many of you have fireplaces in your place? Almost everybody does, right? I just love a good fire in the wintertime. Now, if you have a, a, a fire that depends on being stoked with wood, you know that if you don't keep wood in that fire, the fire what? The fire dies. If you have a gas fire and the gas goes out, your fire goes out, right? So I got to keep the fuel on there to keep it alive. Marriage is the same way. You start with what you have in common. Oh, you too? The excitement of marriage, right? But then if you don't stoke it, if you don't add fuel to it, it's going to fall apart. And guess what? If somebody else comes along and puts a log or two on it, where do you think, by nature, your attention's going to go? To the person who's putting the fuel on. If you're a human being with a blood pressure, your heart works, all right? That's what's going to happen. Therefore, I got to make sure my fire at home is red hot compared to any other fire I could have. So let's summarize what we've learned so far. First principle, a healthy marriage is where your best friend is your spouse. So let's find out. How many of you are married? Let me see your hands. <clears throat> Good. So just answer this in your mind. Is she, is he your best friend? I'll never forget the day it dawned on me, Marsha was my best friend. Years ago in California, I was going down 580, coming to the Redwood Road exit, and as I got off the exit, that's where it struck me. My wife is my best friend. And the reason it struck me is because I had just been thinking about what kind of jerk I'd been. Anybody, any guys here besides me are ever a jerk? Yeah, some of you women raised your hands and went, I, but that wasn't very nice, all right? No, you didn't do that, all right? But, but you know, I, and I thought, I, I'm just amazed she loves me. I'm amazed she doesn't just, you know, bail on me sometimes. But she is so committed to me. She's my best friend. I could not ask for anybody else. She's my best friend. She's my best friend. Principle number two. Ready for this? A healthy marriage is a torrid. You know what the word torrid means? It means hot. Really hot. All right? A healthy marriage is a really hot love affair between husband and wife. Now, I want to ask you a question. Would you rate your marriage as a torrid love affair between you and your man or you and your wife? It is meant to be exhilarating. It's meant to be exciting. So you stay at home, so to speak. You know, in Genesis chapter 2, when God creates Adam, 
and he introduces Eve to Adam. In the Hebrew, there's a, there's a nuance that happens with Adam that our English translations, like the NIV and the older translations, don't pick up. Now, the New Living Translation gets it right. It's why, it's, personally, it's my favorite translation. But here's what it is. God creates Adam, remember, then he creates all the other animals. And he brings the animals to Adam for Adam to name, right? And Adam names them, you know, this, that, the other thing. And then God causes sleep to fall, and God takes his uh, rib out of his side, and God fashions the woman, and he brings the woman to the man. Now, in, the, in a lot of the translations, Adam, you almost, I almost in my mind get this kind of monotone voice. Adam goes, oh, look, woman, okay? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's not what it's like in the Hebrew. The New Living Translation, the first words out of Adam's mouth is, at last, at last. And I'm so glad she's not a monkey. At last. It's not an aardvark. Wow, God. It's kind of the Hebrew equivalent of a whistle. It's like, wow, God, look what you made and gave me. I really, really love this. I really, really like this. That's what you need in your marriage. You need the wow in your marriage. That person needs to be wowthy of your wow, right? And what happens in our marriage is we, we forget the wow. We stop wowing. And if you don't wow that person, all right, then what happens is they don't live in a wowthy way. What happens is somebody else says wow about them. It's like the fire on the wood, or like the, the wood in the fire. Whoever says wow the loudest gets our what? Gets our attention. Just by nature. It's the way it works. So if you don't make the wow, somebody else does, you're putting them in a very tempting area of life. So I want to encourage you to wow each other. So we're going to start. Here's what we're going to do, all right? <clears throat> I want all the husbands and wives, all right? I want you to, I, I, want, I want you husbands to repeat this after me, okay? So I want you to grab your wife's hand She's with you today, all right? Hold her hand, and, and, I, and I just want you to look into her eyes, and I want you to say on the count of three, wow. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right. First of all, first of all, not my eyes. Don't look at my eyes, all right? Look at your wife's eyes, all right? And don't say, whoa, say, wow. Wow. Ready, guys? Come on. One, two, three. Look at her. One more time. Okay, of all the services, you're the worst. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you that. You know, you're usually, you guys are usually a step above everybody else. You've had a lot of caffeine in your system. That was pretty sad, all right? And your wife feels pretty bad right now. So I'm gonna give you a chance one more time on the count of three, guys. Look at her eyes, all right? Hold her hands. One, two, three. All right, now, awesome. Now, ladies, ladies. Stay with me now, ladies. Don't get too excited here, all right? If your husband, every morning when he got up, if he texted you during the day, if every night when you guys meet and say goodnight, looked at you and went, wow, would that make you feel good, ladies? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. All right, your turn, ladies. Hold his hands. Look in his eyes. Ready? On the count of three, give him a while. One, two, three. Wow. Whoa, guys. Guys, do you feel it? Huh? How many of you men, if your wife said that to you in the morning, wouldn't want to leave, right? Said that to you at night, wow! It would just, it would be awesome, wouldn't it? So for the next two weeks, every time you get up in the morning, 
I don't care what you look like. Get past what it looks like. Don't go, whoa. All right? I want you to look at each other. I want you to go, wow. Wow. I guarantee, I guarantee she's going to get up earlier and get ready. Wow. Because we love to be wowed. Amen? Aren't you glad you came to church today? All right. Number three. All right, in a healthy marriage, healthy marriage, spouses focus on helping each other become more Christ-like. More Christ-like, that's discipleship. So my goal is how do I help Marsha, my wife, become more Christ-like? How does she help me become more Christ-like? And sometimes the way we do that is we have to change our behavior because we make it hard for them to be Christ-like when we're a jerk. But my job is to help my spouse become more like Christ, to minister to them, to encourage them. And one of the ways we do that is just always being there for them. You know, just showing them that they matter to us. And, you know, we all need that security. But listen, guys, clue phone here. Wives especially need that security. And especially as you age as a couple, they need that security. It's different, it's different for a woman as she ages than it is for a guy as he ages given where our culture is and the glamorization of young. means a lot to her. means a lot to her. Lewis Smeads was an ethicist theologian, wrote a lot about relationships, about forgiveness. And in his later years, before he died, he was writing about his marriage. And listen to what he said. He said, when I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over the years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. The connecting link with my old self has always been the memory of the name I took on back there. I am he who will be there for you. He's talking about his vows. He said, I made a vow. I am he who will always be there for you. And he says, life changes. She changes. I change in all kinds of ways. But the one thing that's never changed is that I will be there for you, part of it. Tim Keller talking about marriage vows. You know, when a couple stands up and exchanges vows and you're at the wedding listening, you hear them declare their love for each other, you know, and whether it's in life or in death, you know, I will always be there for you in sickness and health, doesn't matter. I'll always be there to you to the very, very end. When, a, when married couples declare their vows to each other, they're not telling you, at least they're not supposed to be saying, I'm telling you how much I love this person. You already know they love that person. That's why they're getting married, Right? When they declare their vows, it's, they're declaring their vows for a lifetime. What they're saying is, I love you as much or even more five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 or 60 years from now, I will always be there for you. I am he who will always be there for you. I am she who will always be there for you. Now, right about now, some of you are feeling like, wow, I haven't been a very good, um, very good husband. I'm not, I haven't been a very good wife. And you, you might be kind of upset with yourself, might you know, be feeling like, wow, you've done a lousy job. Listen, whether you have or haven't, get over it. Start today. Today is the day when you say, I'm going to do better. And I got a little, little technique I'm going to teach you that Marsha and I discovered this summer. <clears throat> and our whole family, all our kids, grandkids came to see us for about two weeks this summer. It was a highlight of the year, I'm sure, for us. But we knew it was going to be exhausting. We knew that we'd be traveling, there'd be food and opinions and, you know, all the stuff that goes when everybody gets together. 
And so we both looked at each other. And I, now, I don't know if this is true for you or not, but when Marsh and I get under stress, all right, okay, we tend to be really nice to everybody, but we then sometimes get a little short with each other. Any, anybody else? Okay, I can't tell if you're laughing at me or with me, all right? I assume you know what I'm talking about, right? So we just said, hey, we're going we're gonna to love each other. We're going to be, we, here's what we literally said to each other. I'm going to be nice to you for the next two weeks. I don't care how irritated, how tired I get, how many disagreements, I am going to be nice to you. And we did it. And after two weeks, it was awesome. We were both like, wow, we really did that. You were nice to me, and I was nice to you, and then we, no, all right, but we're going to be nice. So we continue that. We, I, I call them sprints, not marathons, sprints, where we say, hey, for the next week, I'm going to be nice to you. We got a, a week coming up, there's a lot of stuff going on. Our calendar's full, there's some stress going on, whatever it is, I'm going to be nice to you. And it works when you, when you think of it as, as week to week. It kind of gives you like something to aim for that you can achieve. So here's what I want you to do for the next two weeks, right? And I want you to write this down. For the next two weeks, here's what you say to each other, okay? And you do it maybe once a day, right? You say, for the next two weeks, I will put you first. Wow. I will put you first. I like that. All right, now, then you say, I will romance you. So let's try it, guys. Ready? I want to hear all the guys say it. Ready? I will romance you. Now, don't look at me, okay? Look at her, all right? Look at your wife right now. Hold her hand. Come on. Hold her hand. Don't make her feel bad, all right? Everybody else holding their spouse's hand, and you're like, uh, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. We already know why you got a marriage problem. Okay, hold her hand, right? All right? Say it with me, guys. One, two, three. I want to hear it. I will romance you. Wives, what should you say? Wow. All right. Wow. Okay. All right. All of us together, say it. I will encourage and forgive you. So that's what I want you to do. Now, you guys, you guys, hit, you guys hit the jackpot today. You got wow, all right? And you've got this commitment you're going to make each other for the sprint. All right? For the next two weeks, I'm putting you first. I will romance you. I will encourage and forgive you. If you live that way for the next two weeks, oh my goodness, you will end up with a torrid love affair between you and your spouse. Amen? Amen. All right, let's talk about parenting, okay? Let's talk about parenting. How many of you are parents? Let me see your hands. Okay, this next question is very tricky, all right? It takes a lot of intelligence to answer this next one. See how smart you are. How many of you are children? Let me see your hands. Okay, unless you're an alien from another planet, you are a child. You're someone's child. Now, your parents may be passed and gone on by now, but you're still a child. And I want you to keep that in mind. There's a reason why I'll get to it in a moment. What, how do you help the relationship in parenting? Okay, I want to give you two clues. I don't have time. I got more, but I, I, we don't have time. So I want to focus on just two things. Proverbs chapter 23, listen to what it says. He's saying to his son, listen to your father who gave you life. And do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth. Who do you buy the truth from? From your father, from your mother. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Keep it. Wisdom, instruction, and insight as well. Your job as a parent, more than any other job, more than loving your kids, your job is to make them wise. 
Your job is to make them wise. That's your job. Now, of course, you're supposed to love your kids, but you can love your kids and spoil them, and you're not going to help them at all. But you're to love your children and make them wise. Because we live in an unwise world. And if you don't make them wise, the question becomes, who is going to make them wise? And while we don't mind helping at the church, it ultimately depends on you as a parent or as parents to make them wise. And that's why we got this ministry fair going on. I'm telling you what, the best time to make them wise is when they're young. And so, for instance, on Wednesday night with our WOW program, they learn Bible verses. They talk about those verses, what they mean. In Heather's ministry in junior high and high school ministry, they focus on getting the word into their hearts and lives and the practical application of it. That's why we want you to help us out with those ministries. And you ought to help out if you can. But make them wise. But how do you make them wise? I was, I've been reading through Isaiah. And I came to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. And I've read this before, but I, I, it's so prophetic in my mind. Listen to what Isaiah says. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Those words are prophetic to our own culture and our own day. Do you hear what the writer is saying? He's saying, be careful. Be careful when people take what's wrong and call it right, take what's right and call it wrong. What is right and what is wrong today? You can't answer from the culture's perspective because the culture doesn't always get it right. The question is, what does God say is right? What does God say is wrong? So where is the wiseness or the wisdom we pass on to our kids? It's based on the word of God. What does God say about all kinds of things? That's what we pass on. We pass it on by our example, right? Because kids learn more by what we do than what we say. And, listen, also by what we say. We pass that on to them. That's my job. That's your job as parents. Now, the next question becomes, what is the child's responsibility? What is the child's responsibility? Proverbs chapter 3 says it like this, <clears throat> verse 11. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Let's have all, if you're uh, under 20, say this with me. Ready? Nice and loud. Listen to your father. I'm whispering. I can't hear you. Let's try it again. Ready? Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. And I want you to focus on this word, children, all right? Whether you're 60 or 6, all right? I want you to focus on this word, despise. What does it mean to despise? It means to disrespect. The writer of wisdom, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us as children, we are to respect our parents. Now, when I go to other cultures, like I was just in India last week teaching for about two and a half days to a group of over 100 pastors in Guwahati in the Assam state. Next weekend, when I talk about hate, I've got a couple of just powerful stories to share with you from our brothers and sisters in Christ in India. And you don't want to miss it. But in a lot of cultures, like in India, Respect for parents lasts as long as the parents are alive. In American culture, we have a tendency to stop thinking of ourselves as kids when we leave the home. In God's eyes, as long as your parents are alive, you need to respect them. Even if they're disrespectful, you need to learn to respect them. Because look what it says in Exodus chapter 20. 
It says, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The opposite of despising is honoring. That's our job, to honor our parents as long as they're alive. Now, uh, a, a rabbi that I read commenting on this verse said there's a problem with the verse, and the problem is we have a tendency only to read the first line. Honor your father and your mother. But he says you can't appreciate this if you don't have the context. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land, which means if you don't honor your father and mother, you won't live long, you won't last long in the land. You know, what he's saying to them is this. If you don't learn to respect your parents' authorities, if you don't learn to respect your parents' authority, you're going to lose society. If you don't honor authority, you end up with anarchy. That's what we see happening in the culture. And I know there are bad authority figures, but don't forget Paul said to the, to the people in the New Testament, Peter said it too, you got to respect, you got to respect those who are in authority over you, and Nero was an authority over them. Because if you don't have respect for authority, you end up with anarchy. At least honor the position. And this idea of respecting authority begins in the home. So if you want to ask yourself, what's wrong with the culture, you always have to go back to the home. What's wrong in the home? When did we stop teaching our kids to respect authority? I'm guessing materialism has a lot to do with that. Because if I'm working my fool head off to make money to live a great life and give my kids whatever they want, it means I don't have as much time with my kids. So when I do have time with my kids, I feel guilty. So what do I do? I spoil my kids when I ought to be disciplining and loving and passing on wisdom and teaching them to respect. I hurt them. I don't help them. Say, Pastor, I think a lot of what you said today was good, but I'm struggling. I'm struggling with what you said about marriage because I've got a bad marriage. And there are some bad marriages, let's be honest. But, you know, think about this for a minute. God has also been involved in a bad marriage. In the Old Testament, it tells us. He likens Israel to a wife and he says, look how unfaithful you have been to me. In the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. Look how the bride of Christ sometimes behaves. But the wonderful thing about God is he's always a faithful spouse. He's always a faithful spouse. And while you should never stay in a physically abusive relationship, and if there's been multiple infidelity, you may need to get out, people today are leaving their marriages for far lesser reasons. And you may have a difficult marriage, but you can resolve 50% of the problem yourself by deciding you're going to be a good husband, a good wife, that you're going to be faithful because God has been faithful to you. Parenting is hard. Parenting is hard. Especially when you have a child who's rebellious. But God never stops loving us. And as parents, we must never stop loving. And being a child is hard. Right, students? Not easy being a son. Not easy being a daughter. Not easy living in that home. But Jesus knows how hard it is to be a child. For he was a child too. And when he grew up, one day his father asked him to do something that was so difficult that he prayed and he said, if it's possible, remove this thing you've asked me to do. Nevertheless, he said, not my will, 
but your will be done. And he went to the cross and he died for our sins because he honored and respected his father. As we come to communion table today, we have the picture of what Jesus did for us, his love for us, his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your example of loving us no matter what. We thank you for your, for your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who teaches us true honor and true respect. Lord, there are just some things sometimes we don't want to do. But we pray, Lord, not for our will, but your will be done. And we thank you that Jesus did your will. We thank you that he gave his life for our lives. We thank you that he died our death. We thank you that he took our sins away. We thank you that we are totally forgiven. As we sang earlier, we thank you for this extravagant love. We thank you, O oh God, that you are such a good, good God. And God, what makes us good is the fact you are good. What makes us accepted is the fact that you are love. So as we take this little meal today, as a reminder of your love, God, just flood our hearts and our minds with your presence, your truth.